Some of you already are acquainted with Pastor Jason Parker. Others of you, uh, not at all. I am not a fan of uh, long introductions, and so I won't give one. Um, But uh, Jason, so you know a little bit about him, is the father of uh, six children, uh, the oldest of which are out of the house, and the youngest of which is 14. Um, The other thing I'll mention this evening is that he's been pastoring at his church, at the church where he pastors, uh, there in Colorado Springs uh, for 17 years. It is a joy to have you, brother, uh, come and preach the word. Amen. Well, it is my privilege to be with you all tonight. This is uh, a joy just to get to know uh, this church. I met Pastor Nathan um, a dozen or so years ago, maybe a little bit more than that even, uh, and they were gracious to host me in in the parsonage here at that time, and so now I get to come back, but this time I actually get to meet the church family here, and so I'm really thankful to be with you guys. I'm thankful we have some fellowship time to follow, to get to know each and every one of you, and um, I'm thankful to see the work of Christ going forward here. My desire in our meetings uh, tonight and going on through the week is really to be an encouragement to you in what Pastor Nathan set out as the theme of our conference, trotting the old paths, uh, fostering conservative Christianity. What I would like to do, and just to give you a little uh, overview so you know where we're going with this, is I'd really like to uh, take truths that you know uh, and layer them one on top of another just to build up a whole idea of what this means to be a conservative Christian and the mindset and the applications that, that starts to work out in our lives. Uh, I feel like we're in a, in, a, in a cultural moment, as I'm sure many of you would agree, that oftentimes merely telling people principles of conservative Christianity fails to really register. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and open up our eyes to a whole new world that really is there. In fact, it's contained in what you already confess and what you already believe, what the scriptures teach us. Um, but we want to just draw that out and see how the conservative uh, approach to scripture really makes sense, makes sense of the world, uh, draws us um, after Christ. That is my my desire here. So what we're going to do here in the the evening sessions of this uh, this conference is we're going to just be working through step by step the uh, these topics that I want to cover, but really just building uh, layer by layer here so that we can um, see again the joy of uh, following Jesus Christ here. Uh, What I'm not going to do, well, I should mention this. For those of you who are uh, members here at Blaine, we're going to be together tomorrow morning as well and just have some sermons that I hope will be an encouragement to you in the Sunday school hour and the morning service. But the evening uh, evening series, we're all going to build on each other. So maybe I should say this too. For tonight, get ready. We need to lay a lot of groundwork tonight. And so this might be a little bit longer than some of the other sessions uh, that we have But uh, we need to lay this groundwork, start drawing out just these living truths that I hope will be an encouragement to you. (coughs) Pardon me. Um, 
Let me begin by talking about this tonight. Uh, as you think about fostering conservative Christianity, what I want you to know is there really is a path and it really is good to follow in this conservative Christianity. But what is the conservatism that I want to talk about here? I, f- I feel like I need to maybe even clarify that a little bit as we begin tonight. We, see, we use the words conservative and sometimes you know, immediately our minds go to something like uh, the Dobbs Supreme Court decision versus the, uh, um, what is that act called now before here, the, the uh, some Defense of Marriage Act, not Defense of Marriage Act, Equality Act, thank you. Yes, and we, we think culture wars as soon as we hear conservatism. Or perhaps if you've grown up in uh, church in a certain background, you might immediately think worship wars as soon as you hear conservatism. Now, that's not a wrong instinct. Those things certainly do come into play in all of these issues here. Uh, there's something that has to do with conservatism and these kinds of controversies. Um, but trying to determine what is conservative without, with regard to things like law and economics and politics and entertainment or technology without having deep roots in the goodness and truth of uh, reality is a lot like trying to get calculus problem answers from uh, without ever having arithmetic. Uh, we need to do the patient work of looking to Jesus Christ in faith, hope, and love to work out what is this whole path of conservatism and why is it good. Now, why should you care about this? Perhaps we'll be talking about some things here tonight that some of you think, I'm not really sure uh, why all this matters. Maybe a simple introduction that might help you uh, want to listen to this is this is really about the things that you care about. I think that's most people's introduction to conservatism. They love their families. They love their actual country that they're in. They see something good here and they feel like they want to preserve that and maintain that. Maybe for you here tonight, it's you love your church. You love Blaine Baptist Church and you're so thankful for the church family you have here. That's a good thing. And that love should, I hope, spur you on to say, you know what we're going to talk about here in the next few nights is really important because it's exactly what's going to enable you to understand why what you have here matters, to build on it, and even to pass it on to the next generation so that we foster this conservative Christianity. So what is conservatism as I want to talk about it here? And I'm going to get my notes ready as I talk, as I've already mentioned, not me really preaching here in the evening sessions, just talking about things we know here. What is conservatism as I want to talk about it? I would put it this way. It is the spirit-enlightened recognition that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. Fostering conservative Christianity means being true to the reality of the gift of Jesus Christ. It means staying on that one way to the Father. So I want us to ask together here, what would it be like to be in such communion with God that it translates into his will being done on earth as it is in heaven? What will enable us to keep on the path of ascent to God which Christ himself has blazed for us? How do we hold fast to Christ our head? Or what would it look like to live a life such as is described in the hymn attributed to Patrick of Ireland, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me. 
Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me. Christ to the right of me, Christ to the left of me. Christ in my lying, Christ in my sitting, Christ in my rising. Christ in the heart of all who think of me, Christ on the tongue of all who speak to me. Christ in the eye of all who see me, Christ in the ear of all who hear me. That's what I want to try to answer here. As Bible-believing Christians, we instinctively turn to the scriptures for answers to these kinds of questions. However, not all readings of scripture are equal. Some are false. Some are inadequate. How do we discern? Here's where I want to start laying out examples for you and working, layering this truth so that we can start to get this conservative mindset that we're talking about here, which is holding fast to Christ. So I want to use church history as a training ground for us. I'm going to zero in on an answer to this question, how do we discern, by bringing up an ancient answer called the rule of faith. Uh, we're going to use these resources in church history to help us see what a faithful reading of scripture and a faithful living in the truth looks like. Irenaeus uh, was perhaps the premier pastoral apologist of the second century church, and he had to address this very issue. Uh, in his major work, usually referred to as Against Heresies, he deals with those who claim to hold to the scriptures, claim to believe the scriptures, but actually do not. Such then is their system, which neither the prophets announced, nor the Lord taught, nor the apostles delivered, but of which they boast that beyond all others they have a perfect knowledge. These false teachers adapt with an air of probability to their own peculiar assertions, the parables of the Lord, the sayings of the prophets, and the words of the apostles, in order that their scheme may not seem altogether without support. In doing so, however, they disregard the order and the connection of the scriptures, and so far as in them lies, dismember and destroy the truth. Now, in contrast to these false teachers, the church holds fast to the rule of truth, as he describes it here. The rule of truth. And these listen, listen carefully. This is how he describes the word of the rule of truth. Here's what the church believes. She believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of our God and the advents and the birth from a virgin and the passion and the resurrection from the dead and the ascension into heaven and the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus, our Lord, and his future manifestation from heaven and the glory of the Father to gather all things in one, and to raise up anew all flesh of the whole human race in order that to Christ Jesus, our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible Father, every knee should bow and that he should execute just judgment towards all. This is what Irenaeus called <clears throat> the rule of truth or the rule of faith as a guide to staying on the path. You've probably heard words very similar to what he just said there. Now we only have one other work by Irenaeus available called The Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. Uh, it's a very short thematic summary of the whole teaching of the Bible. In fact, it's the, uh, the earliest um, summary teaching of the whole Bible put forward in a positive note, not apologetically defending the faith, but on a positive note just to teach people what the Bible says. It's the earliest one we have uh, after the Apostles. Uh, here's what Irenaeus again states about the rule of faith. We must keep the rule of faith unswervingly, he says. 
So he goes on. And this is the order of our faith, the foundation of the edif- and the edifice and support of our conduct. What do you think he says? God, the Father, uncreated, uncontainable, invisible, one God, the creator of all. This is the first article of our faith. And the second article? The word of God, the Son of God, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he goes on to expound about Jesus Christ. And the third article, the Holy Spirit, as you probably guessed already, right? And he expounds about the Holy Spirit. Then he briefly walks through the storyline of Scripture up to Christ, showing that Christ is preeminent in all things, from creation to Christ. In the second part of his works, he goes back to the prophets to demonstrate how the Holy Spirit spoke of Christ through the prophets. The Holy Spirit speaking of Christ. These are the articles of our faith. So in Irenaeus, we have an example of the rule of faith worked out in practice, both refuting heretics and then training disciples. There are four things I want you to notice about this rule of faith that we've just talked about from Irenaeus. First of all, it clearly presupposes the ultimate authority of the scriptures. Uh, Secondly, the rule of faith assumes the ultimate unity of the scriptures. Old and New Testaments, it all goes together in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Because of that, you might have heard things like, even from Pastor Nathan, such as scripture interprets scripture. Well, that's what this kind of a rule demands. Scripture has to interpret scripture. Irenaeus himself would say it against heresies. The demonstrations in the scriptures cannot be demonstrated except from the scriptures themselves. Third, the scriptures must be interpreted in the proper order and connection, he says. They must be interpreted in the proper order and connection. Uh, if we were to translate that into our language today or what you've probably heard, things like uh, interpret the scriptures in context. Have you ever heard somebody tell you that, right? You have to make sure you interpret the scripture in context. Uh, that's good. That's very important. I think most Bible-believing evangelicals would likely assent to these three aspects of the rule of faith. But I think there's another aspect of Irenaeus's understanding of the rule of faith that is often not properly appreciated. There, there is a reason that lies behind why the scriptures must be seen as authoritative, unified, and ordered. Right? These, they are that. But what lies behind that? That reason is the true God, or who God really is. Did you pick up on this? The Trinity is the presupposition for the right understanding of Scripture because the Trinity is ultimate reality. When you come into contact with ultimate reality, then you are seeing things rightly. For example, Irenaeus will write, the truth brings about faith. For faith is established upon things truly real that we may believe what really is as it is. The truth brings about faith. By the way, just there's no concept in his mind, as you can tell, in this modern concept of a, a controversy or, or even a distinguishing between science and faith as if those things were in conflict. No, the truth brings about faith. For faith is established upon things truly real that we may believe what really is as it is. So do you remember what Irenaeus listed as the order of our faith? What did he say the order of our faith was? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. What's the proper order and connection of the scriptures? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The triune God. 
This is what lies behind all proper reception and understanding of the scriptures. Let me quote a contemporary theologian to the same effect. Scott Swain writes, We cannot fully appreciate how the Trinity is in the Bible without observing how the Bible is in the Trinity. While the Bible is the cognitive principle of the Trinity, he'll explain here, the supreme source from which our knowledge of the Trinity is drawn. In other words, what's the authoritative source that tells us about our triune God? The scripture. While that's true, he says, the Trinity is the ontological principle of the Bible. The Trinity is not simply one of the things about which the Bible uh, speaks. The Trinity is the speaker from whom the Bible and all things proceed. This is what Irenaeus is driving us to recognize. You all believe in the Trinity. You worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is something you know and confess and believe, but let's get the gist of this. He says, by, by this example of using the rule of faith, Irenaeus has shown us not just what revelation we have to pay attention to, namely the whole storyline of scripture centered on Christ, but even the reality in which this revelation comes to us, the triune God. Irenaeus, Irenaeus is showing us not only what to think, but the way to think. There's a mindset going on here. There's an orientation of the heart, you might even say, that arises from the worship as we have come to know God in Jesus Christ. You might even say there's a kind of devotion here guiding the reader of Scripture, an ultimate devotion to God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is so important for fostering conservative Christianity. I want you to notice here that This approach we're talking about does not arise from any one particular passage of Scripture, does it? It's not a matter of merely exegeting a particular passage in terms of the words uh, or the syntax and grammar of what's going on here in isolation. It's actually the view of the whole in which the parts make sense. The parts can only be properly understood for what they are in light of the whole. One quick illustration here. This is, this is a finger. We all have one of these, right? Hopefully. <laughs> um, but this can only be a finger in light of the reality of the human body. If there were no such thing as the human body, you could find a piece of flesh that does, has exactly what this is, but you couldn't identify it as anything because it has no relationship to anything else. It's only in light of a body that I can say, oh yeah, (laughs) that's a finger, right? That might sound really simple, something we do all the time, but it's the same truth even in coming to the scriptures. We are understanding all of them in light of who God is. So I want to suggest that a fundamental orientation of the heart for fostering conservative Christianity is a deeply formed Trinitarian mindset. Grasping the classical Christian confession is absolutely crucial to keeping on the old path, the one path to the Father in our doctrine, in our worship, in our life, because the Trinity changes everything. Uh, It it really defies merely human categorizations. No man-made religion, no philosophy has ever come up with this kind of a God from below. This has to be revealed to us. And when it is, then everything we know in this creaturely realm is seen in a new light. 
Whatever man might come up with, or even come to recognize through natural revelation is taken up and transformed into an entirely different register when seen in the light of the triune God. <clears throat> but now by saying this is, is crucial, by the way, I don't mean to say something simplistic like we simply div- you know, get the Trinity and then deduce from that how we ought to live. Or I don't mean that we can simplistically read off of Trinitarian revelation what mankind ought to do in any given situation in politics or economics. But I do believe there is a, uh, a whole way of looking at reality that is inculcated by embracing the Trinity. Our minds are trained to perceive truth. Learning how to make right kinds of distinctions and right kinds of connections by learning about our God. Now is a good time to say this as, as any. I think that gazing in wonder at our trini- triune God, our, the Trinity, uh, is something very humbling for us as human beings. And that is very good. How are we to approach such a mystery as this? I say this because I really believe a a crucial component of a conservative Christian mindset is humility in the face of the tremendous mystery that is our God. Um, I believe you can make the case historically that a liberal mindset, to contrast with conservatism, tends to place great stock in human reason and human ability. We can fix this. We just got to get the right technology. We just got to get the right whatever our, in, lies in our hands to do. But I think any sense of awe in the face of the God with whom we have to do produces an awareness of how much we do not know and how much we are not in control. And the conservative mindset gets this. It's one of humility, not timidity, not fearful to move forward into things and to deal with issues, but one of humility. So having said what I've said so far, pardon me, I need to give you a sketch, a basic sketch of Trinitarian truth to help you see the way of thinking that I'm talking about. And I'm going to do this by summarizing another, take another example from church history and summarize a classic set of sermons on this very topic given by Gregory Nazianzus. Gregory was a, uh, a preacher, a church leader, in Asia Minor back in the 4th century. And he preached these sermons in the capital city of Constantinople in 380, where there was a lot of controversy brewing about Christ. Uh, These sermons are actually remarkable sermons. They're remarkable for being devout and theologically weighty, but at the same time having a personal touch that draws the listener in to what is admittedly a very difficult topic. And In fact, I'm not sure that I would um, have ever had the guts to preach these sermons that, even though I'm a pastor, (laughs) that Gregory preached um, at this time. A very difficult subject to tackle in a sermon. Uh, In fact, in his very first sermon, or oration, as they're usually come to be called, he warns against trifling with theology. Discussion of theology is not for everyone, I tell you, not for everyone. It is no such inexpensive or effortless pursuit. For one who is not pure to lay hold of pure things is dangerous. There's a warning actually being given here right as he enters into talking about the doctrine of God. And that is that we're dealing with dangerous things here. 
And if you're not committed to paying the price for what it's really going to take to know this, you better not trifle with it. Don't act like you know something that you don't know. Don't say things about God when you don't really know what you're talking about. <laughs> there's, there's a humility that has to come into this here. Uh, theological differences in his city had come to a flashpoints of social controversy. Marketplaces, dinner parties, women's quarters were full of arguing over whether the son was unlike the father. <laughs> it's kind of hard for us to imagine in our day that that you know this is what people are arguing about in the city if the son is like the father or not well but this is what they were arguing about uh, what he was dealing with he was making a jab at the eunomians which was a um, a leader a, a teacher of the day a strong form of arianism which said that the son was different than the father and he believed they were inflaming people's passions in debates that were not helpful to piety <clears throat> so he goes on to say, I am not maintaining that we ought not to be mindful of God at all times. It is more important that we should remember God than that we should breathe. Yes, we must discuss God, but we must do it in a manner that is fitting for godliness. And I believe we're seeing a conservative mindset at work here. Uh, it's, it's not simply a matter of just getting some principles. Okay, you've got it. No, you have to have a life conformed to this true revelation in the way it's been revealed in order to know this. Now, having laid that groundwork, the following sermon then uh, takes the bull by the horns, you might say. He treks into this issue of the doctrine of God. I eagerly ascend the mount, Gregory says, or to speak truer, ascend an eager hope matched, matched with anxiety for my frailty, that I may enter the cloud and company with God, for such is God's bidding. We wouldn't even dare to do this if God himself didn't say, come here. I want you to know me. To know God is hard. To describe him impossible, he proclaims. Now that seems to undermine his whole point in preaching the sermons, right? Why would he say this? The reason is that Gregory knows we need to be humbled to realize how much we do not know before we are willing to be trained to see through what God has revealed in creation to his eternal power and divine nature. He will say that things like theology is harder than any other philosophy. Here's how he goes about proving that. If we ponder all the things that we do not know, just in this amazing created world around us, or if we ponder what he calls, and to use his language, this little world called man, think about yourself. Think about all you don't even know or understand about yourself, right? Do you understand yourself perfectly? No. Do any of us understand ourselves? If we think about that, we should get a sense of how we must proceed in theology, he says. Faith rather than reason shall lead us, if, that is, you have learned the feebleness of reason to deal with matters quite close at hand, like your own self, <laughs> and have acquired enough knowledge of reason to recognize things which surpass reason. If so, it follows that you will not be a wholly earthbound thinker, ignorant of your very ignorance. He's giving us a real challenging warning. If you're going to think about these things, you better have a deep humility and trust God and then start walking into, if you will, his uh, revelation. 
So with this uh, preparation, we can then begin to use creaturely terms in the sense of what they point to beyond themselves. So when it comes to talking about God, we Christians, he says, hold to monarchy or monotheism. Not monotheism defined as the sovereignty of a single person, but the single rule produced by equality of nature, harmony of will, identity of action, the convergence toward their source of what springs from unity, none of which is possible in the case of created nature. The result is that though there is numerical distinction, there is no division in the substance. There is numerical distinction in this monarchy, but no division in the substance. Well, we're talking here, of course, about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is the begetter, or he would even use the term emitter, or, he says, whatever name one can apply when one has entirely extrapolated from things visible. This is why we limit ourselves to Christian terms and speak of the ingenerate or unbegotten one, the begotten, and, as God the Word himself does in one passage, what proceeds from the Father. We're walking very carefully here, paying attention to what God has said about himself and trying to learn what that means, to get the concepts, not to bring down God to our level, but to learn through what is revealed to see him. Now, having made this positive statement of his position, then Gregory goes on to address several arguments put forward against the orthodox position of the Trinity. And by doing this, he progressively weans our minds from earthly conceptions of God to what is meant by God's revelation of himself. So here's an example. His opponents might ask, so when did these last two originate? You have the Father and you have the Son and the Spirit. When did those two, those last two originate? He replies, they transcend whenness. But if I must give a naive answer, when the Father did. <clears throat> when was that? There has not been a when when the Father has not been in existence. This then is true of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Since when has the Son been begotten? Since as long as the Father has not been begotten? Since when has the Spirit been proceeding? Since as long as the Son has not been proceeding but being begotten in a non-temporal way that transcends explanation? How is it then that these are not co-unoriginate if they are co-eternal with Him? Because they are from Him, though not after Him. Gregory says, being unoriginate necessarily implies being eternal, but being eternal does not entail being unoriginate. Because time is not involved, they are to that extent unoriginated, even if you do scare simple souls with a bogey word, for the sources of time are not subject to time. You should know this if you think about who God is. Right? Now, this is hard work. (laughs) Are Are you following what he's saying here? There's a lot to think about in what he's saying, isn't there? Uh... But what is he doing? Through a process of chiseling off incorrect concepts, Gregory carves a humble and a beautiful conception of the Trinity. And in so doing then, he makes some very important statements which we need to learn, like Father, the word Father, designates neither the substance nor the activity, but the relationship, the manner of being, which hold good between the Father and the Son. Just as with us, these names indicate kindred and affinity, so here, too, they designate the sameness of stock, of parent and offspring. Right? Why do we use these words? Why did the scripture reveal these kinds of words to us, like Father? We're not talking about the substance of God or the activity of God. We're talking about the relations of God, he says. 
He also says this of the Son in the Incarnation. He remained what he was, what he was not, he assumed. When the Son of God, the Word, became man, did he change anything of what he was? Nothing. Not at all. He did not change that he remained what he was. But what he was not, true human nature, he assumed. And then, of course, in the sermon, he begins to wax eloquent on all that Jesus did as the God-man. In fact, this is what faith delights to do, because faith is what gives fullness to our reasoning, he says. In the process, Gregory makes use of an important exegetical rule. Some things in Scripture must be predicated of the Godhead, which the Son shares. Other things of the incarnate Son, who emptied himself and was made man. Pardon me. All he's doing here is unpacking for you something you've said you believe. Do you believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Yes. Were you baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Yes. Did you know that there are deep resources there for fostering, holding fast to Christ? This is training you how to think about God and all things. Let's go back to Gregory here. Having overthrown some faulty philosophical objections to a proper understanding of the Trinity, with this exegetical rule in hand, Gregory goes on in his fourth sermon to address difficulties that arise in our minds from certain scripture passages. We won't take time to look at them here, but the sum of it all is that the scriptures do not contradict but establish that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And then in the final sermon, he addresses one other thing, which again goes back to how we handle scripture. He tackles the topic of the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit truly God? And he acknowledges that there is something especially difficult in the doctrine of the Spirit. We have less, you might say, to go on than even talking about Jesus Christ. He's particularly concerned to deal with those Christians who denied the divinity of the Spirit on the grounds that the Bible never explicitly states the Holy Spirit is God. For with Jesus Christ, you might hear him say things like, I and the Father are one. Okay, you don't ever have the Holy Spirit in the Bible saying that. Therefore, it's presumptuous of us to say the Holy Spirit is God because the Bible never explicitly states it. Perhaps you've heard argumentation like that, not just on this issue, but on others. Gregory actually says, their love for the letter is a cloak for irreligion. Instead, for our part, we have such confidence in the Godhead of the Spirit that rash as some may find it, we shall begin our theological exposition by applying identical expressions to the three. What we call the Father, we call God, we call the Spirit. If the Spirit can be called by the same expressions as the other members of the Godhead, then he is the same. Furthermore, Gregory appeals to the Spirit doing actions as God, not just being God's action. Here's what Gregory says. He says things. He decrees. He is grieved. He is vexed. All of which belong to a being with motion, not to the process of motion. If he is a substance, not the attribute of a substance, he must be taken either as a creature or as God. And so Gregory challenges his opponents. But if he is a creature, why do you believe in him? Why are we baptized in him? Gregory's going to later ask in the sermon, is there any significant function belonging to God which the the Spirit does not perform? Is there any title belonging to God which we cannot apply to him except ingenerate, the unbegotten one, and begotten? 
sort of those who keep bringing up the argument that the divinity of the Spirit is not in the Bible because it's not stated in so many words in the Bible, Gregory gives two basic replies. First, he points out that it is the meanings of words which must be grasped, not bare words. And he gives multitudes of examples from the Bible, especially examples of the Bible using words about God. Second, he points out how light shines on us bit by bit. Some truths about God are brought to light by additional revelation throughout time. And these two insights about interpreting Scripture are still crucial today. Having accomplished this task then, Gregory calls upon all men to worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the single Godhead in power, because to him belong all glory, honor, and might forever and ever. The rule of faith, in other words, arises from this God and from no other. So let's come back to the rule of faith. I hope you didn't forget. That's what we're we're still talking about that here, right? And even from what we've just seen from Gregory, it's immediately apparent that you can't contemplate the triune God, the reality in which everything takes place, without at the same time contemplating Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, Thinking about this whole issue of the Trinity was not something that came about from um, Greek philosophy corrupting simple Bible-believing Christians into coming up with this weird idea about the Trinity as people throughout church history and still to this day keep charging. You know you know what drove us all as believers to the doctrine of the Trinity? <clears throat> Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now what do you do with that? <laughs> this is reality. I mean, the word is in flesh and we are seeing his glory. Now what do we do with it? How do we talk about this? How do we explain this? What does our faith mean in light of this? It was Jesus Christ who made this reality apparent. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Pardon me. This is the reality we're coming to grips with. Our triune God revealing himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And here we have abundant resources, devout resources to draw on from the history of the church when it comes to thinking about who Jesus is in order to worship him. Uh, in fact, you might even call this the major task of the church. Who is Jesus Christ so that we can worship him? And especially in her early centuries, the church was wrestling with this. So let me draw on the classic On the Incarnation by Athanasius, um, an early church leader from Egypt in the 4th century. Athanasius wrote to one Macarius and urged him to grasp a foundational truth. The renewal of creation has been wrought by the self-same word who made it in the beginning. The renewal of creation, our salvation, has been wrought by the self-same word who made it in the beginning. Out of his goodness, God made all things out of nothing through his own word, our Lord Jesus Christ. But, he says, men have fallen away from God into corruption, and it's not worthy of God to abandon what he created good. The only possible solution is for the word of God himself to take on human flesh and blood and to put this corruption to death and to rise again incorruptible in order that we might share in his incorruption. The word did not will merely to become embodied or merely to appear, he writes. Rather, he took our body, and not only so, but he took it directly from a spotless, stainless virgin without the agency of human father. The word perceived that corruption could not be got rid of otherwise than through death. 
Yet he himself, as the word being immortal and the father's son, was such as could not die. For this reason, therefore, he assumed a body capable of death in order that through belonging to the word who is above all, he might become in dying a sufficient exchange for all and itself remaining incorruptible through his indwelling might thereafter put an end to corruption for all others as well by the grace of the resurrection. Athanasius says this is the first reason for the incarnation. The word came to put an end to this corruption through his death and resurrection. Now he gives a second reason for the incarnation and it's for our knowledge of God. When God the Almighty was making mankind through his own word, he perceived that they, owing to the limitations of their nature, could not of themselves have any knowledge of their maker, the incorporeal and uncreated. He took pity on them, therefore, and did not leave them destitute of the knowledge of himself, lest their very existence should prove purposeless. For what what use is existence to the creature if it cannot know its maker? Think about that for your own life, by the way. What is your life worth if you can't know your maker? He would suggest nothing. How could men be reasonable beings if they had no knowledge of the word and reason of the Father through whom they had received their being? They would be no better than the beasts had they no knowledge save of earthly things. And why should God have made them at all if he had not intended them to know him? But in fact, the good God has given them a share in his own image, that is, in our Lord Jesus Christ, and has made even themselves after the same image and likeness. Why? Simply in order that through this gift of God-likeness in themselves, they might be able to perceive the image absolute, that is, the Word Himself, and through Him to apprehend the Father, which knowledge of their Maker is for men the only really happy and blessed life. So he asserts there were two things the Savior did for us by becoming man. He banished death from us, made us anew, and He became visible through His works and revealed Himself as the Word of the Father, the ruler and king of the whole universe. So Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. If it were not so, he could not accomplish what was needed to make us partakers of God. Uh, And by the way, in Athanasius' mind, this is not a paradox at all. It's entirely fitting for God's wisdom. The whole world was made through his wisdom. And so he takes it to himself. Athanasius, I I see a conservative mind at work here. Athanasius was attempting to throw light on the one wise path that God has given for us to know him, to be rightly related to him. Uh, That's why this debate was not only about metaphysical definitions of the Godhead. Maybe if you've been following what I've been saying. Does does a lot of what I've been saying so far sound like really deep, even metaphysical things you have to think about a lot? Yeah, (laughs) it does kind of, doesn't it? But it wasn't just about that. Uh. It was a struggle about the very nature of Christianity and our salvation. What does it mean to know God? It's a struggle about the nature of God and his relationship to creation and thus our relationship to God. Salvation means blessedness in being united to God in Christ. And I see crucially for Athanasius here, he is wrestling to bring all things into line with the revelation of Jesus Christ and not vice versa. In other words, he doesn't start with created nature and then try to conform to what to Christ to what he thinks that is. He strives to purify his concepts by seeing them in light of God's revelation of himself in Christ. And he's calling on us to do the same thing. Athanasius was writing to Macarius to do that. And that's what we're trying to do here. Christ is the heart of creation. <clears throat> 
Christ is the heart of everything you see. Creation is not the heart of Christ. We must hold fast to that one path, the old path, and that path is Christ. That's what these believers, these preachers were striving for and working for. And these sermons and these writings led up to what we now call the Nicene Creed, which is actually the uh, creed that was put forward as it was revised in Constantinople in 381. This is what we call today the Nicene Creed, which you've probably heard. <clears throat> but if not, I'll re- uh, listen carefully, and if so, I'll review it for you. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead, the life of the world to come. Amen. <clears throat> Folks, you realize this way of thinking was often what was taught to people for their baptism. This is like Christianity 101. You want to know what it is you really believe, what it's all about? This is it, right? You have to believe this. You have to confess this. Now, we'll spend eternity pressing into the depths of this. But I would suggest, and here's where I'm laying the foundations for our our talks this week. I would suggest that right here, we have a tremendous amount of resources for training our minds toward a conservative mindset, toward fostering conservative Christianity, which in its heart is simply endeavoring to hold fast to Christ because he is our God and our Savior. And we don't want to depart from him to the right hand or to the left. Now, before I finish laying that foundation, I do need to add in here another definitive clarification that occurred at the Council of Constantinople in 451 about Jesus Christ, which will lay the foundation for all of our thinking to come here. Here's this definition. It says, Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, speaking of those like at Nicaea, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before all ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men in our salvation, of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence. 
<clears throat> not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ ta- himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. This is the kind of thinking that needs to be in our bones. <clears throat> I would, as I wrap up some of our thoughts here for tonight here, I do believe we need to be creedal Christians if we want to hold fast to the old path, which is Christ. <clears throat> Pardon me. This is not in any way a substitute for the scriptures or a supplanting of the ultimate authority of the scriptures. In fact, it is the faithful outworking of the scriptures. And what this is doing is training your heart and your mind to recognize the whole reality in which the scriptures themselves come to us, in which our lives operate in the scriptures. And if you don't get that, it'll be very easy for you actually to take the very scriptures that you claim to believe and go astray. Pardon me. I would actually suggest to you that any church which has not internalized these Trinitarian Christological confessions cannot claim to be conservative in any serious sense. <clears throat> if, if these are not the air you breathe, the way you think about all of life, you're going to have a pretty hard time con- uh, convincing me that you're conservative. <clears throat> Not only do they preserve for us the fruit of these believers' defense of the faith and their pursuit after true worship and laying hold on eternal life, they also sketch out the initial direction this path will take. That's what they're really doing for us. They're they're, they're, they're like orienting you. They're saying, hey, walk this way. This is the way to think. Start going this way. And what we're going to do in the rest of the week is we're going to just pick out some of these road markers that these have laid for us and we're going to start developing them. And the ramifications are explosive. Pardon me. Uh, The ramifications of just what's contained in these fruits of reflecting on our God, reflecting on Jesus Christ, are absolutely life-changing, world-changing. And I believe they point us to what we now call conservative Christianity. You see, Christ is the supreme revelation of God to us. Uh... This revelation explodes the closed pagan world systems. In Christ, we have the divine and the creature united perfectly with no contradiction, without either one having to become something other than what it is. Pardon me. You have the infinite and the finite together in one person without any compromise, without any confusion, without any change. Perfect distinction, perfect union. In fact, this is the heart of our salvation. In fact, this is the heart of our world. This is what creation was made for. This is God revealing himself to us. In fact, we come back to Christ. It's the distinction of the natures that makes possible the perfect union. And we're going to draw on that in the coming nights here. But just to help us, just to wrap up here, what we're seeing here is this amazing truth of who our God is and ourselves in relationship to him. Let me try to help you think about it this way. God and creation are not two of any kind. You, You can't put them together in an equation. 
like God plus creation, I mean, how many does that equal? Most of us would say two. And what this is saying is, no, that doesn't equal two. And if you think that way, you're not thinking the way God has revealed himself. Because God and creation are not two of any kind. God is distinct from his creation, totally distinct from his creation, and yet he is totally interior to us. God and his creation are not parts of some interactive system. Divine agency and creaturely agency are not parts of a closed system in which more of one means less of the other. Reflecting on this revelation shines light on our path to God. (coughs) Pardon me. And that's what I want to uh, invite us to think about this week. I think for our purposes here, I'm going to stop right there, uh, Pastor Nathan. One thing I did forget to ask you about ahead of time, <laughs> even in the structuring of these meetings, is if you wanted to have time for questions in our, in our evening talks. Um, totally okay. Yes, exactly. Because I, really, again, I'm thinking of these more like lectures, if you will, than like sermons. I just and and so um, let's let's stop right there. And if you have any questions. Um, love to ask uh, you to ask them or if you'd like me to try to clarify something that I didn't say very well here earlier I'd be happy to try to talk about that a moment again this is foundational we're, we're one of the reasons I'm using church history is just to help us see how other people worked from the scriptural revelation to this point to help us see how this path works in our lives to begin to train our own minds uh, to follow the same kind of a path <clears throat> and then we'll begin drawing out the ramifications of that so hopefully that was clear in what we're talking about tonight. Questions? Pastor Nathan, yes. Um, how do you think that most Christians <clears throat> in our day have failed in thinking in a Trinitarian way? <clears throat> Excellent question, and I think more of that will come out even as I draw out these applications more specifically in our next sessions. I really feel like we're in a situation where... Um, We've continued to confess things we don't really understand in many ways. Um, and that by going back and renewing our uh, understanding of even what some earlier Christians were wrestling through to make these kinds of confessions, it will help us to appreciate why these kinds of distinctions matter. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Let me bring it down to a practical level, though. Sometimes I've asked people this question. Um, in fact, I remember even asking this in an ordination council one time. Uh, it's interesting to see, um, what difference does the Trinity make? I'll ask people that question. You know, so it's a fundamental confession. We all say, yes, we believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yes, we, we all believe that. Okay, so today, what difference did that make in your life, in your thinking? And most of us sit there for a second and go, hmm, hmm, well. And if we think long and hard enough, eventually we'll get around to, well, without the Trinity, we couldn't be saved. Very good point. And most Christians can get there, you know. So that's that's good. But it just, I think it reveals to us there's a big gap in our confession, but our actual practical living. We haven't, put this all together very well yet and we need to work on putting it together more and then when we do it actually opens up vistas of opportunity and understanding for us uh, 
that fit right with what we're talking about here in our conference. So maybe a little answer to your question, and we'll unpack that more even throughout the week. Excellent. Yes? Is it possible for you to give us an example of a right way of how the Trinity, how we think about the Trinity, how it affects our daily living? Yes, and we're going to do that the rest of the week here too. I would point you back for right... <laughs> yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yes. One of the reasons I used historical examples talking here tonight was to give you an example of somebody uh, articulating a right way to think this through. For example, let me just uh, go back to Gregory here <clears throat> and some of the things I, I had to say fairly briefly, but that are important points as we're uh, going along here. When um, he talked about naming uh, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We use Christian terms is what he said. <laughs> we, we, we follow the revelation that's given to us um, in its appropriate way uh, on a creaturely level so that we can speak truly about something in God. Uh, this is hard for us to speak truly about God, but this is what God has given us to work with. And so when we use these words like Father, we're talking about relationships. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the substance of God, uh, His essence, because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all share the same divine essence. There's no difference whatsoever. If you make any difference in the essence, what have you just done? You've made three gods. Even if you didn't intend to, and that's what so many of these controversies back in that day were all about, trying to hash out. You, you, you can't make <laughs> three gods. Um, you, you have to have only one God. That means there can only be one divine essence. We all believe there's only one God. Um, but we talk about him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about his relations. His relations internally, if you will, to himself. These become very important for understand for our understanding of the created order and how it reflects him. Uh, I would actually submit that very point. I'm going to come back to this point here um, later on this week. Understanding substance in relations uh, is such an important understanding for all of our human relationships in the family, in politics, in what makes a human community. Again, not that we, like we talked about earlier, that we simply read off of the Trinity, you know, uh, simplistically deduce from the Trinity how we, what we ought to do, but that we begin to understand a deeper reality about our relationships, about what it means to be a person. That's one thing we're going to talk about later on here. What does it mean to be a person? Um, and why does that matter? I mean, you know you're a person, right? You know the people around you are persons. Uh, and that's a wonderful thing. And you have even good, probably, instincts about um, how you might treat somebody because he's a person. But what actually undergirds that? What what should train our thinking about that? I think it's God has, reve- has revealed himself in, in the Trinity that um, helps us understand this. Um, and these things will all become part of a conservative way of thinking about this world, our relationships with one another, that will help us to navigate even, um, this is not my, my purposes here are not at all to get into politics. 
I'm not even going to try to address those kinds of topics here. Um, but let me just say, these things will very much influence our, our political uh, views, our understandings of humanity and how we relate to one another. Um, they will understand that, help us understand the very nature of our salvation as a union with Christ and God. Understand what it, how that's lived out in the body of Christ, the church. Um, these are the kinds of things I want to talk about more this week, which I hope will be helpful. So while I can't, uh, I'm not giving you a lot of specific things right now, uh, we're trying to lay groundwork so that when I say things later on, you'll recognize, oh, that's where that came from. <laughs> this is this is from the outworking, the hashing out of this is who our God is, and this is who He's revealed Himself to us in Jesus Christ, and we understand ourselves better now because of that. So, great question, but hopefully, maybe I don't know. Is that a teaser? Do they call it that a teaser? <laughs> You're supposed to come back next time <laughs> and uh, and talk about it more. Good, excellent question. Anybody else? Yes, Paul. Uh, we're all Baptists here, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> in the early 20th century, uh, we liberal and conservatives or uh, controversy. The liberals would make a big deal about Baptists being a creedless mm-hmm. denomination. So therefore, they concluded that, well, if we're creedless, we can interpret the Bible any way we want. And the mm-hmm. Right. We, we don't emphasize creeds in our Baptist circles. You seem to be suggesting we should probably rethink that. I would suggest that we should rethink that. <laughs> yes, I think the liberals, the late 19th, early 20th century, were able to capitalize on the fact that a lot of Baptists did sort of have that mindset. <laughs> you know, that, you know, we, we follow the Bible, not man made creeds. There's an instinctive truth there. We want to uphold the absolute authority, uh, sufficiency, inerrancy, inspiration of Scripture itself. Nothing else is on that level at all. Um, but it was a failure to recognize that you're going to, you can either work that out faithfully or not. And there are faithful paths and there are not. And these kinds of creedal statements help us mark out this is a faithful path. This is the right way to interpret what you're saying, seeing there. Um, and I think it would do us well to, to pay attention even more to some of the early, like I'm talking about here, the early what are called ecumenical creeds of, uh, of Nicaea, Constantinople, Chalcedon. I think they really would be good for us. So, by the way, that's an interesting question. Just who here... Maybe I assumed people were a little bit more... Who here would say, I've never really been familiar at all with the Nicene Creed. That's not something I'm familiar with. Or maybe we say, okay, some of you say, I'd never really heard that before. Most of you would say, I've at least heard of it. Uh, anybody here memorized it before? No? Okay. Um, or the Apostles' Creed would be another example from this early uh, era. Not written by the Apostles, but rooted in the Apostles' teaching and developed in the church. Um, uh, yes, I actually think these are really good things for us. Uh, I think there was some wisdom in, I, I alluded earlier to the fact that something like the Apostles' Creed would be taught to those who were coming to baptism. And I think there's some wisdom in that. You're, you're equipping a new believer to say, okay, here's a, a basic framework that you can 
hang things on, you can work with. As you study the scriptures and as you press after knowing God, here's a good basic framework you can work with. And even though, say, like the Apostles' Creed doesn't, doesn't ever use the word Trinity or doesn't um, you know, use some of the language that we develop later on, the structure is there. Uh, this is the way of thinking. This is the way of approaching it. And I think it'd be good for all of us to learn that. So that, I mean, your example is an apropos, so that other forms of departing from the faith don't try to capitalize on that and say, hey, no, no, you know, no creed but Christ. Uh, we, you know, we don't, we don't do those kinds of things. Um, ex- excellent observation. Good. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Sure. Sure. Sometimes, sometimes what I tell people is, um, I think Catholic is a good word. And I'm not going to let the Romanists claim it all. You know, uh, it's, uh, it really is good. There's an important truth here. Again, not a scripture word. Um, I think Ignatius was the first one to use that word Catholic about the church shortly after the time of the apostles. But that idea was definitely prevalent. And we'll, and we'll actually talk more about that too when we get to the church. Um, in fact, let me come back to Baptist and Catholic here. I think it's good for Baptists to confess that we believe in a Catholic church. Because sometimes in Baptist history, we've veered in different directions because we've forgotten that. Um, so there's important truth here that sometimes because of our experience or maybe our background, we say, whoa, whoa, whoa Catholic, um, you know, <laughs> that's not me. <laughs> um, but by by getting the whole picture, we're actually helping ourselves stay true to that one uh, path <laughs> Uh, in a much bigger picture here than just my personal experience or you know what I know of when I think of Catholic or something like that. Excellent point. Good. Yes, sir. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> it doesn't have a, a, a pope at the, the head of it or anything, right? <laughs> um, <clears throat> good. Yes, sir. Great question. No, I'm not going to address Genesis one in particular in terms of, um, but I would I would agree with what traditional interpretation down through church history that uh, in the Old Testament, even in Genesis one. You see shadows, you see hints of the Trinity. Now, without the revelation of Jesus Christ, we never would have been able to put that all together into a coherent picture, you might say. Uh, but I think everything we see in the Old Testament is perfectly consistent with the revelation of Christ, which then helps us to look back and say, oh, yeah, <laughs> our God is triune. He always has been. 
um, always will be, <clears throat> and that came out to us then in Jesus Christ. So yeah, I think that is an Old Testament hint, you might say, of uh, what was coming. Good, good point. All right, uh, thank you for your attention. We plowed through a lot of material tonight. Uh, we'll, again, we'll hopefully pick up and make this more and more applicable to our lives as we hone in on where we're at here. But uh, I'll just turn it over to you, Pastor Nathan. I would just note by way of, um, by way of giving one example of things that in our day are rather greatly misconstrued because of the air which we breathe, the way that we're taught to think. Um, in modern conception, in, in the way that we as moderns are taught to think, we're taught that we're able to, f- able to figure it out with our own mind, that we can trust in our reasoning, and, and our thinking can be the foundation of how we go about living life. Um, and what Jason is in part saying, I think, as I'm, I'm reading a little bit into where you're going, but um, as we look to the past, we, we don't find, let's figure it out on our own. Let's reason it out and uh, come to our own individual conclusion, and that's going to be where I live. That's a dangerous path. That's a dangerous path. Um, modernism teaches that you can trust in your thinking. Um, don't think that you can. Don't think that you can. Um, what One way in particular that it uh, teaches that, uh, that I make mention of with our church family is uh, when it comes to conservatism in particular, uh, we're taught, the, the modern way of thinking, we're taught, judge the new in, in light of the past. Is that what we're taught? No. It's totally the opposite way around. Judge the past on the basis of the present. That's what we're taught. Judge the past, figure out the past on the basis of what you know, on the basis of now. Um, and that, that, that same way of, uh, in parallel, that same way of thinking, I think uh, uh, Brother Parker did an excellent job of of pointing to even more foundational than thinking about the importance of judging the present by the past. That's how we should more, more, more basically be thinking. Um, but even more foundational than that, we should judge everything by Christ instead of judging Christ by everything. Right? And if we can, if we can understand how we have to, we have to invert our thinking from the way that the world has in, in inclined us to, to be to be thinking. Um, enough enough preaching after the preaching. <laughs> uh, we're looking forward to some food and some fellowship together. Uh, I am looking forward to some more uh, as you're able uh, and as God allows to open up your your uh, schedules some more times together with you in the, the nights ahead. Um, but uh, let us do this. There's a whole bunch of food ready down there for you, and there's more than enough for all of us to have seconds and thirds. I had no idea how many people were coming, so we have plenty down there. Uh, But let's pray uh, up here, and then when you get down there, it should be rather self-evident how we uh, go through the line. Um, And the only thing that I would ask is for the parents, at least the first time through, uh, go through with your children uh, the first time through. 
Um, I'm not talking about those who have uh, older children. <laughs> but uh, uh, rejoicing to ha- have the look forward to the opportunity for fellowship. Let us pray and look together to our God once more. Lord, you are a good God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, revealed to us in your word, confirmed to us in the faith of those who have gone before us. And Lord, as we rejoice to think on those from whom we have learned, we pray that we might be uh, faithful and continuing in that strain of learning. I pray now that you would bless in our fellowship. Uh, Thank you for the food that's been provided. Might you uh, rejoice us in time to converse together, uh, even as we look to Christ and think on all that we see and hear and do in light of Christ and in light of you. We pray that whether we eat or fellowship or whatever we do, that we might do all to the glory of you, our God. We pray in your precious son's name. Amen. Thank you each.